Greetings, in Jesus' name, and welcome to uh, our little band this morning. And I'm glad to see everyone that is out on a cold, rainy morning. I know that a number of people have different things going. Our youth are... Um, visiting somewhere else, and there's some others too elsewhere, so good to see all you here, and with a blessing to hear about the grace this morning and the emphasis, I knew, I mean, I thought Joshua was on for the opening, but I hadn't talked to him about it, and then he got up and led to singing, I wondered now, well, who's on for the opening? And my mind began to go, now where am I going to open up if no one comes up? <laughs> and I was thinking of um, Romans chapter 2, where um, Romans chapter 2, where uh, right now it's, Therefore thou art excusable, inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, talking about no matter where we start from, whether it's what we call the world or whether we call it in a Christian home, we are all inexcusable because all of us who judge others have all done the same or similar things. So that's where I would have gone this morning just verse by verse and maybe would have ended up in a similar place. So I appreciate that. This morning, I have the longest title I think I have ever had for a message. I hope it'll fit. Maintaining healthy families in a time of social and religious chaos. Maintaining healthy families in a time of social and religious chaos. And if you can't get that all on, we can just shorten it and maintaining healthy families, I suppose, would work too. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Two observations that I get right, right just right off the top there is that the church of Jesus Christ will be victorious. And it will prevail against all possible opposition. And whether you see this war, this battle as offensive, or whether you see it as defensive, makes little difference. Actually, I see it as both. But the Lord Jesus Christ will have a spotless bride. And it will be by grace. So this morning I'm continuing a series of message based off that essay written by John Copeland. And um, I'll continue on. Let's just pause for a word of prayer. Let's just bow our heads right now. Lord, we are grateful to you for your marvelous grace. Lord, we would have nothing were it not for your grace. But we also know, Lord... That with your grace comes power. With your grace comes 
ability. With your grace comes, Lord, obedience. With your grace, Lord, comes holiness. Lord, with your grace, Lord, becomes the beauty of holiness. Lord, that comes. Your grace brings that as well as forgiveness and a, and a heart that is free from guilt. We just thank you. We just, and we could look at grace and yes, we can continue to be amazed. And Lord, this morning I pray you'd help us to, um, as we look into your word, as we look at the, the, the environment, the place we are in, the issues we face today, we just pray, Lord, that your grace continue. Lord, actually we know it will. As you heard last week, Lord, that there are some certain promises that you have promised to give us, and you have promised, Lord, to give us grace as we walk in it. So, Lord, we pray you would bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as a continuation of that message, the essay is titled, A Vision for Conservative Anabaptist. What are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in the 21st century. And at the beginning here, I'm going to meditate a little bit on those two words, conservative and a Baptist. Anabaptists identify us as a Christian group that though we share many aspects of belief and life with other Christians, they, uh, we are unique in significant ways. In, in her study, Anabaptists, separate by choice, marginal by force, Elizabeth Scott notes this, and this is what she says. The Anabaptists of Central Europe evolved in a time of social and religious chaos. They developed unique ideas concerning the church and state, and they retained a wildly radical view of society. They were earnestly concerned with the restitution of the true church on the apostolic model. Um, as I think of the statement that she made, a wildly radical view of society, what I get from that is the two kingdoms concept is a wildly radical view of society where you have the kingdom of the world and you have the kingdom of God and the two are separate. That's, I believe, what she meant by that. And they evolved in a time of social and religious chaos. Then is the modifier. Uh, that was the word Anabaptist. The modifier is conservative. Conservative Anabaptist we're talking about. But conservative is used to distinguish us from Anabaptists, people who are called Anabaptists who are not conservative. What does that mean? Well, separate by choice is a distinction of early Anabaptists and conservative Anabaptists. Separate by choice. Whatever non-conservative means, it means they are no longer separate from choice from the greater society. And they largely have assimilated 
into the mainstream culture that they are surrounded with. In fact, many Anabaptists are more liberal than some Protestants are. And I could name a a number of ways how that is true. So, but that is not the case for conservative Anabaptists. Some things were conserved. So Elizabeth Scott made this interesting observation. The Anabaptists of Central Europe evolved in a time of social and religious chaos. John Copeland's statement is, What are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in the 21st century? Now, I'd like to superimpose those two statements, and that's where we come with the title. We're going to superimpose Elizabeth with John's, and we're going to come up with this statement. What are the challenges and opportunities for conservative Anabaptist church communities in a time of social and religious chaos? The 21st century is a time of social and religious chaos. You know, there are some phrases that get it. There are some phrases that... Well, here is a phrase that I have found this past week that gets it to the T. Social structures have been changing radically in the last 50 years, and the change continues. And the religious sentiments have followed it. And the two, the two, the social pressures and then the religious pressures exert a tremendous amount of pressure. And so, I, well, like I said, that statement, a time of social and religious chaos just fits us, but it's not unprecedented. The early Anabaptists lived in a time of social and religious chaos. It was during that time when um, the social structure was being upended with the Reformation movement. And the religious pressures came also. And so they had their day. Is it greater today than it was then? Well, I think it might be. (laughs) The persecution is not there. But the pressure... To actually, the pressure is greater, I think, today. So, what are those pressures? And what are the opportunities? And the challenges? Well, the first one, the first challenge and opportunity I spoke in my last two messages, which was community. Church community. Committed church community. The individualistic chaos that we are in, this culture that we're in, militates strongly against the community that used to be normal among a lot of people, and definitely including Anabaptist people. And the digital revolution has uprooted long-standing social norms. So the modern social and religious chaos has to a large degree, destroyed healthy, functioning communities 
around us, and we are next in line. That's what uh, I tried to bring out in the first two messages. The challenge is we need to resist the destruction of that community. That's the challenge. John D. Martin said, being a Christian without being integrated in a church community is like saying, I want to play baseball or uh, he could say any, any team sports. I want to play on a team. I want to play baseball, but I don't want to be a part of the team. Well, you're not going to do that to to be to play baseball, you actually have to be part of the team. You cannot be an individualistic, an individual. It's not an option. And then to have a good team, you need to have get together lots of time with purpose and practice together to have a good team. Oh, that that fits community. That 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 describes community. But today. Nearly all the social winds pull us away from that kind of church community. And the opportunity is that we can develop and maintain a healthy, nurturing, godly community. And this community is, this is a community that is deeply committed and loyal to each other. It is interacting often with each other and the people are close in a healthy way. They are like-minded in visions and goals. And then we can offer, as part of the gospel, part of the gospel, I think community is an integral part of the gospel, a strong, healthy, committed community to others. And a well-functioning community is is a part of that city that is set on a hill that can't be hid. It is attractive to lonely and hurting people. That is our opportunity. So, like I said, the prior two messages, especially the last one, we looked at that first challenge to build strong, committed church communities in an age of individualism and reluctance to commit. If you did not hear the message two weeks ago, Committed Church Community, I would recommend that you listen to it and include some of the nuts and bolts of how to function well as a community. Now, what is at the base of community? What are the building blocks of community? What are communities made up of? Anybody have an idea? Families. Hmm? People. People. <laughs> People. Families. Families are the basic material of society. And families, of course, vary in their makeup and, and size. Some some individuals are single. Some couples don't have children. Some are single parents for various reasons. Obviously, Christian families vary less than non-Christian families do. 
such as we don't have Christian families who shack together, not married. We don't have or shouldn't have Christian families who are divorced and remarried with families living together. And we definitely don't have same-sex relationships, which are considered families nowadays. But the point I want to bring out is there are families are made up of, they're varied. This morning, we are ready for the next challenge and opportunity. It's the second challenge on the list of six in the essay. And the challenge two is to to maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. To maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. And here we have the typical family. The typical building block of the community is a family with children. Children that are growing up. Children with many different personalities, many different abilities, growing up in a specific home environment. And what is the challenge? To have a family where children can grow up in the security of loving commitment. Did you grow up in a home like that? You don't have to say yes or no. Just want you to think. Did you grow up in a home like that? If you did, broadening this whole thing out to our society, you were actually an exception and not the norm. And here's the other question. Parents, do your, are your children growing up in a home like that? Do your children have that kind of home? You know, when children become adults and they grow up and their, their understanding broadens and their perception of their own home matures. You know, when you're in something, you don't see a lot of things. But when you actually grow up and you're outside your own home, your perception increases. It happened to me and it happened to you if you're an adult. And we can look back with more objective perspective on our own home life. And what I have seen is the perception tends to go two ways. One way that as a child becomes an adult and they reflect on the experiences of their own home and then as they grow up they hear experiences of other homes and maybe they got to get into other homes and they interact with other people and though they earlier saw many needs and problems in their childhood home yet when everything is put in perspective with some other home, they actually become to realize that their home was a good home. And they begin, as adults, to appreciate their parents and their home life more. It's not as easy among the challenges of relationships and life's experiences and work and health issues and children and finances and setbacks. 
it's not as easy to have the kind of home life you had an ideal for after all. And then you begin to realize a little bit what your parents actually went through in their life. And yet you begin to realize maybe some of the ideals you had were maybe a little bit unrealistic. And you realize, you know, my home life was actually pretty good. Especially if we look at many other homes that we get into. But like I said, it goes two ways. There are also some adult children that when they grow up and they interact with other people and they get into the homes of their friends, they begin to realize how dysfunctional their home was and how chaotic their upbringing was. And they realized that their home was not a nurturing home. They didn't necessarily know it when they were in it. It was rough, but they thought that's normal. They thought that's maybe how all families are. So it's normal for me, so it's probably normal for everyone else. But awareness grows as they get into other homes and as they engage in conversation and as they grow in understanding of what God's will is for a home. And they now understand that they didn't grow up with that security of commitment and love. And now they must come to grips with that. They must come to grips with their past. What they thought was normal was not healthy. It is not healthy to react defensively to each other in the home. It's not right to give each other a silent treatment or a cold shoulder. It's out of order for the mother to lead the home and the father to be passive and not lead out. It was damaging to allow popular culture into the home various via various forms of media. And of course, the abuses could get much worse than that, including emotional, physical, and sexual. So this morning, as I say, the challenge is to maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. We acknowledge that some of us, to varying degrees, experienced that or did not experience that in our own home. But I want to draw attention to one word. And this word will actually, it'll make some assumptions It'll, it'll do a little bit of, not stereotyping, I'm trying to think of the right word to use. It, it'll make some assumptions of where we're at, even though it's not completely where everyone is at. And it is the word maintain. So the challenge is to maintain healthy families. In Maintain healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. And so I'm going to focus on that word maintain this morning. This is not a correction. It's actually, let's say we have been given a gold mine as we generally as a people have been given a gold mine. And the challenge is us for to some degree is to maintain and improve it. 
Conservative Anabaptist families, by and large, have kept the biblical and traditional family structures. We have a lot going for us. We have, we are are operating from a position of strength already. In fact, we are blessed almost beyond, beyond belief when you consider the general society. So that's the assumption I'm going to take. We have been given a lot. It's not true across the board, and it's not true that there's not a lot of issues. That's not the true, but there has been a lot given to us, and I'm going to focus on some of them this morning. We must defend what we have against the strong winds of chaos in the mainstream culture that would destroy what we have. We must maintain what has been mostly given to us with all the faith and the tenacity of the saints of God who are in tune with their Savior. That is the defense. And then the offense. We can improve this home environment. We must use what all we've been given by inheritance and this position of strength to further the kingdom. Second, I mean, Psalm 16, 6 says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. And that is largely true. Now, so the rest of the morning, I'm going to go over point by point the biblical family structure that we have largely inherited. And it's to raise awareness of what we have, and it is to identify God's plan for the family. And it is to encourage each one of us to rise up and build. It'll be mostly about structure this morning. I would imagine that uh, the nuts and bolts will come at a later message. So, what do we have? What do we have that is given to us that we did not even fight for? Now, this is not true for everyone here, but it's true largely for most people here. Number one, what has been given to us is the expectation of a lifelong marriage. Lifelong marriage. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. Jesus was answering the Pharisees' question about divorce, and this is his answer. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. If this one principle of a joining together in one flesh and letting no man put asunder, if that one principle were followed in this nation, it would be a completely different land. 
You know that. You would not recognize this civilization we live in if all the marriages would stay intact and if all the children were born inside those marriages. Granted, there's lots of major issues and we, I recognize that that won't happen without the grace of God. But I wanted to bring that up as, as a comparative, as a, uh, as a, um, I can't think of the word right now. The breakdown of marriage and family has created incredibly tangled marital and family mess. You see, God's plan for humanity includes the ability to have relationships. Relationship with God first, and then relationship with others. And God designed, by God by design, made male and female. And he made it that there are no children born without male and female. There is no continuation of the human race without the two genders. And God's plan was for marriage to occur before a man and a woman enter in that kind of relationship which produces children. And God's plan is for that couple then to stay together till death. Marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. It's a covenant relationship in which a man and a woman are united as one. Now, what is a covenant? Uh, the Smith's Bible Dictionary defines a covenant as a solemn agreement between two parties with witnesses where both parties agree to fulfill certain conditions and thereby receive certain advantages. Now, here's the difference between a contract and a covenant. A covenant is based on trust between two parties. A contract is based on distrust between two parties. That's why you have a contract, because you want to make sure it happens. A covenant is based on unlimited responsibility. A contract involves limited liability. A covenant cannot be broken if new circumstances occur. A contract can be voided by mutual consent. So we see the obvious difference between the two. And marriage is a permanent union between a husband and a wife. In the last issue of the fish wrapper, and yes, I do read the fish wrapper occasionally. Sorry to tell you that. In the last issue of the fish wrapper, there was a simple standalone statement. Here it is. It said, commitment is stronger than love. I thought, whoa, commitment is stronger than love. Well, the fish wrapper is not the word of God. Praise God. So I thought of that. Is that true? 
Is commitment stronger than love? Well, I looked, thought the Bible says that the greatest of these is love. Love is the more excellent way. Follow after charity. Pursue love. Love treat each other with respect, care, and patience. So I come to the conclusion that love is the chief virtue. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Love each other as thyself. But then I also thought, well, the most common perception of love is that love is a feeling. That's a common perception of love. Love is a feeling. And it can be a strong feeling. Very strong. It'll make you, it'll not make you, it'll cause you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Love will do that. Well, what if the feeling of love is gone? What if there are no feelings of love remaining for a spouse? Only other feelings. Maybe feelings of disgust or dread or fear or disdain. Now what? Commitment. Here is where commitment is stronger than that love. That love. If there is a marriage in which instead of love there is hatred or disgust or fear or indifference, commitment is needed to get through the desert until a solution is found or grace is applied and love returns. So I would say it this way, commitment in itself is actually an expression of love. Marriage is a lifelong commitment to love and to faithfulness between a man and a woman. Remember, we're talking about something that's handed to us as far as the structure. Lifelong commitment to marriage. That structure is handed to us. Not the working out of that structure is not handed to us. John D. Martin remembers how in his youth, uh, divorce and remarriage was non-existent, was not allowed in the conservative churches. But then he remembers when the whole thing started. He said, he remembers the people that were involved in it and he remembers the names of the leaders who did it. But the, the pressure came to loosen up with that lifelong commitment between a man and a woman and to and they began to cave in to the pressures of the social evil that was strongly coming back in the 60s and it was overtaking the churches and here was the statement that was used he said we we have to be redemptive in these situations. We have to be redemptive. Fifty years later. John D. says. He's saying to himself. And he's saying it to us. What in the world did they redeem? And these are his words. They didn't redeem the aggrieved spouse. 
They didn't redeem the children. They didn't redeem the church. And they didn't redeem society. What did they redeem by compromising? Nothing. And he said it makes him angry. And he lived through it. No compromise is hard. Very hard. But compromise is worse. Much worse. If you give an inch, you will be asked for a foot. If you give a foot, you will be asked for a yard. If you give the yard, you will be asked for a mile. And that's why the churches today are dealing with alternative marriages. It started and just keeps on going. We still live in a church culture that has not given one inch, not that first inch. Marriage is for life and remarriage is not acceptable with the first legitimate spouse still living. Do you know how unusual that is? Do you understand the blessing of having inherited a position like that? It's hard, but it's right. And it's much better than the alternative. Do you think we have chaos and we have problems? Yeah, we do. We do. We have many areas where we as a congregation and we as a people fail in. But this is one area that we have. I want to raise awareness to that. This is an area. This is not one of those areas where we have chaos. The position of lifelong marriage, this reality of till death do us part, is an unquestioned and non-negotiable element of our culture. Talk about our church culture. And I think we ought to thank the Lord for that our children can grow up in a home where they do not wonder if one of their spouses are going to leave. They do not need to, and that we as spouses do not need to fear that our partner will walk off. And that we're not embroiled in custody battles. We have a blessing. That all said, not all couples who stay together for life have God-honoring and healthy and fulfilling marriages. We all have room to improve and some of us are failing in our marriages. We are needy. I came across a statement a couple years ago that I, when I come across a statement that I want to remember, I write it down. I have a long list of it, but this is one of them. There is no such thing as marriage problems. (laughs) There's only problems with individuals who are married. And that makes it personal, doesn't it? If you have problems in your marriage, maybe it's a problem with individuals who are married. 
that's a good place to start at least. And Lord willing, maybe I will speak more on some of those details in a later message. We have inherited as part of, we have inherited as part of our heritage lifelong marriage as normal. And it is ours to maintain. It's part of that which develops a structure for children to grow up in an environment of safety and security. Okay, what else do we have? Number two, husband-wife roles. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. There's a major division in I guess, why well, I guess churches in this country or maybe around the world, I would imagine there's around the world, there's a division in the churches about husband-wife roles. The division of two views relating to the role of men and women in the home and in the church. One view is called the complementarian view and the other is the egalitarian view. Egalitarian means equal. Egalitarian view states that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 is this verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And as a consequence of that verse and other tying verses that, that make a package, including the, uh, the, uh, supposed way of how Jesus dealt with women and various things like that. There is a, there is no discriminant based on anything at all in the church, including gender. There is gender equality in church leaderships, including pastors and in marriage. And this view maintains that there is no biblically required distinctions between men and women in marriage in church leadership or elsewhere. Now, the word complementarian was coined in recent years and largely replaces today what was previously known as the traditionalist or the hierarchical view of gender relationships. And that comes from the tenet that men and women are designed to complement each other. Complementarians believe that there are different, differing, non-overlapping roles between men and women, whether it's in marriage or in the church or elsewhere. Non-overlapping, in other words, there are certain roles that are off limits for either. Now, which of these are we? Are we egalitarians or are we complementarians? Is this position, well, obviously we're, we are not egalitarians, right? Is this position being challenged among us? 
And I would say, no. Are there church divisions and are there power struggles over this issue? And we say, no. Not in our circles. We have been given something biblical that we didn't fight for. We got it. Hand it to us. But it is a battle in many churches. And it is a battle in many homes. And it's a battle that some people have stopped fighting. It's over. It's lost. It's been wrong doctrine and practice has been accepted and embraced. So how does that work for the vision healthy families where children can grow up in that secure environment of security and love? Well, God knows what he's doing. We can't have it both ways. We can't have our way and God's blessing on it. The world is a package. If we, if we try to embrace a certain part of the world, more comes with it than we want. And so we get consequences that come along with it that we didn't choose, but we can't help that. You can choose your decisions, but you can't choose the consequences of your decisions. And this egalitarian isn't good short-term or long-term. The complementarian view of marriage maintains that the gender-based roles and a husband headship Wife's submission structure is biblically required in marriage. The husband has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead the family. A wife is to submit herself to the leadership of her husband, respecting her husband, and serving as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. There you have a very biblical view in a nutshell of the gender roles in the family. It's actually the biblical blueprint of our creator, the one who designed us with his purposes in mind. And he's the one that said to us, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as is fit in the Lord. And he told the older women that they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husband, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband, that the word of God be not blasphemed. There can be no doubt taking the direct propositions of scripture and the tenor of scripture that men and women, husbands and wives have differing roles. And they don't overlap in all areas. In this context, so in this context, in obedience to God, we have an opportunity to have healthy families where children can grow up in that security 
a commitment and love and security. In other words, you have a home that is functioning like that. You have, you have the blueprint for that to happen. <clears throat> well, what do you have when you don't have that? Well, there's no juggling career with child rearing. There is no daycare. Instead, you have a godly home where young women are sober. They love their husbands. They are, they love their children, their keepers at home, and obedient to their own husbands. And the husband loves his wife like the Lord does the church. We know that the Lord, the church is the apple of his eye. What goes on in the church is very, very important to the Lord. He is not disinterested. Husbands, do not be disinterested in your wives. Do take care of them. Do know what they think. Do provide for her. Meet her specific needs, including the emotional needs and the companionship needs. A husband loves his life, loves his wife like the Lord does the church. And then he also brings his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He leads and he guides and he shows the family the way a godly man lives. And he shows it in the privacy of their own home. In their own home, when the doors are shut and no one else is there. And no one is at the door listening to... <laughs> oh, I thought that that girl. That would be a Sunday afternoon discussion. I was getting a little loud last evening with our family devotion. was emphasizing some parts of the Bible. And my... Son managed, well, I wonder what people would think if they walk up to the door right now and hear us. In the privacy of your own home, show your children and your wife, lead them, show them what a godly man is like. Here's a statement by John Copeland. The removal of father as the head and provider and the emergence of mother as a career woman has done irreparable damage to the family. We do not struggle much, I don't think. We don't question the biblical roles of womanhood and manhood. And it was given to us. It's a structure. It's a, it's a, it's a practice. It's a norm. It's, it's the way many of us were brought up. And we didn't have to fight for it. And we have it. And it's a blessing. So we have a lot going for us. But we do struggle in varying degrees how to live that out. Okay, number three. Number three of the blessings that we have is that children are welcome. What is the first commandment that God gave to mankind? Anybody want to guess? 
Yeah, I I thought, you know, they're the, they were in that garden, and you had one only one prohibition: don't eat of that tree. And that's true. They only had one prohibition, but they actually had um, a commission. <laughs> they had a commission. And he commissioned them with this responsibility. Genesis 1.28 And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First commandment given to the human race, Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Of course, we don't have. To, we all know that the family size has been diminishing in the West for quite a while. And an analysis that is given: Well, why are family sizes diminishing? Well, there's an awareness that the human population is growing, and so. There's maybe we should not have as many children. And the population has shifted from a rural environment where workers, where children were viewed as help for work to a urban environment where children were more mouths to feed. (laughs) And those are two common reasons given for the diminishing family. John Copeland says, but the factors basic to the hearts of Westerners seem to be more selfish than it is humanitarian. You know, we can have humanitarian reasons why we do something. We can have, well, whenever we do something, we always want to have some kind of virtuous reason why we're doing it. That's, that's common. That's human nature. We all do that. Well, we're going to have smaller families because, well, you know, too many people. Who would want to bring children into such a horrible, chaotic world? I remember talking, soon after I was a Christian, I was talking to a Jehovah's Witness. He was sitting in my truck like normal. And I got to talk to him. And he was young married, just like I was. And he said, not going to bring any children to the world. Can't see it. The world is such a bad place. This was 1992. It was a bad place back then. It really was. The Berlin Wall had just fallen down. The Cold War was over, but it was a bad world. Well, what are some other reasons maybe? What are maybe some selfish reasons? Well, um, to sustain the standard, to have a lot of children... Okay, let's say it this way. To sustain a standard of living which is too simply too expensive and a schedule of living which is simply too exhausting. I, I'm, wording, I'm wording this wrong. I don't have it written down right, so I'm trying to put it in my own words. We want a standard of living and we are living a schedule of life that is too exhausting to include many children. 
It's too expensive and they're too much work. Putting it in other words. So the diminishing family better fits the materialistic values and the career mindedness of men and women today. And children are viewed as threats to personal interests and material prosperity. And so Christian parents say, we say we don't have the um, values of our non-Christian counterparts. That's what we say. But the pressures are definitely there. To have one or two children is acceptable. Talking about general Christians now. To have three is borderline. Four raises the eyebrows. And five and over means you are careless and irresponsible and you're likely raising parasites of society. A family of 10 or 12 is a phenomenon of the dark ages. And that's the reasoning that goes in our society. John Copeland makes this observation. It said it's likely that the modern mother screams more at her two brats than yesterday's mother did to her eight to ten children. But the point is Christian parents in the Western world cannot help feel the pressure towards reducing family size and moving towards higher standards of living. By and large, this has this blessing, let's say it, I'm going to call it this blessing, has been handed to us, but it's not by no means secure, and the pressures are on. Now, I want to do a word of caution here. I don't want us judging each other based on our family sizes. There are many reasons why there's different family sizes. Some families are not able to have more children, though they would have desired to. On the other side, dwelling with your wife according to knowledge means being sensitive and responsive to our wives of their physical and emotional condition. Some large families did not provide security of love and commitment because of the overwhelming responsibility that was in that home. And that's a harsh reality for some families, especially for mothers. And those, well, in any home, but especially those homes, it is necessary that support from outside the home comes before a crisis develops. That's what a church community is for and should be as part of a normal function, provide ample support for mothers and families. So this morning, I had talked largely about structure. Only had lifelong marriage, husband and wife roles, the children are welcome. It's a framework that is essential and needs to be maintained if we're all going to have healthy families where children grow up in the security of love and commitment. 
especially in a time of social and religious chaos. Now, I recognize that the true foundation must be firmly in place for this to occur, and that is the Lord Jesus and his grace. The indwelling sin nature lives in each one of us. It cannot be trained out. It cannot be commanded out. It can't be educated out. It can only be rendered powerless by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is the foundation for everything else. And if we don't have that, then we don't have it. We need the power of the indwelling spirit to render our nature, our simple nature, powerless. And that comes by a personal surrender to Lord Jesus. That's the foundation. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. And how does the rest of it go? It's, it's, it's of no... For you to get up early in the morning and work until late, there's a no avail except the Lord built the house. Maintaining healthy families in a time of social and religious chaos. Can you think of other areas that I didn't touch about? Other strong points of blessing that we were given, that we have inherited, that we didn't fight for, that we could lose if it's not maintained, and that we could do well to continue and improve. And I, I thought of some, and you can you can talk about some more. I thought of a, a work ethic, something that's been handed to us largely. I thought of disciplined children, where it's actually expected that children are orderly. Uh, children honoring and obeying Parents and authority. Providing support for aging parents. And I'm sure there could be some more. Well, as I said, I focus on the framework this morning. Maybe in a future message, we'll get down how we can work it out in real life. And it's not that I have the wisdom to do that. Wisdom won't die with me. Believe me. Some of you, probably most of you, have more wisdom in some of these areas than I do. But by the grace of God, I want to educate us and remind us of God's ways. So that will be for a future time. Why don't we kneel for a word of prayer, if you can, please. Lord, we thank you this morning for the many blessings we have given. First of all, for your grace, for your love, for handing out, for holding out your scepter to us and allowing us to test the end of it and receiving that grace and blessing. And then, Lord, we also thank you for the many other blessings that we have inherited, which comes indirectly, Lord, many ways from your grace and from your word. There's many things that we have inherited, that we have 
received that we have not needed to fight for. And Lord, that has been a blessing to us. And it's something that many people do not have and will need to fight for. So, Lord, I pray as we as a congregation that you would lead us, you would guide us not only to uh, to maintain the structure, Lord, but to really, really live it out under the power of your spirit in real life, in our homes, in public, in the church and in ministry and in evangelism. And Lord, that uh, that we would be able by your grace to maintain that kind of family life that will nurture the next generation. Lord, you, you are the one who gives us the will, who gives us the, the, uh, the principles, and gives us the power. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.